0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai, In Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology, and with the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption, and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash In Conversation And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today on the podcast, I speak with Andrea Abad, founder of Terra Viva Ibiza, a project that seeks to create a sustainable and healthy agricultural production system based on the principles of agroecology, syntropy and regenerative agriculture. Having started her career in marketing for large corporations such as Apple and ExxonMobil, after six years in the countryside, an introspective awakening pushed Andrea to leave her profession and travel to Australia, where she lived in permaculture communities while learning how humanity can reintroduce itself to the cycles of nature. Deciding to move to Ibiza to deepen her knowledge of sustainable tourism a sector where she'd previously worked for five years. Andrea founded Terra Viva Ibiza with the objective of growing food without the use of synthetic chemicals, respecting the natural cycles and the biodiversity of the environment while providing health to the soil. A project which also provides an educational and social dimension, Terra Viva also offers training and advice to farmers interested in adopting this model, as well as spaces for participation and meeting for the community as well as regenerating a 20-hectare plot of land using the rational grazing system of chickens, rotational grazing of sheep, and agroforestry principles, with the collaboration of Albertur Montéis, the Permaculture Association of the Pitiusas, they are also planting over 12,000 trees within a syntropic design. I first met Andrea in October 2021 on a regenerative agricultural crash course at La Junquera a regenerative farm and village in Murcia, southern Spain. And I was so excited and inspired by her story and the work that she's doing that I had to invite her onto the podcast to share her experience with you. Andrea, it's nice to be in conversation with you today. How are you and where are you joining from? Thank you so much, Natalie, and thank you
1: for taking the interest to speak to us and about our project. We're here in Ibiza so anyone listening, please come by. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and um, we've got the door open and the breeze hopefully coming in because it's quite warm. Hopefully you will get to hear some cicadas in the background.
1: Yeah, they're going pretty wild at the moment.
0: <laughs> but I bet we will. So um, I'm going to start with a question that I always kick off these conversations with, and that's, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Wow, what a, qu-
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a question. I don't know, because I think we all live in... in- Different bubbles. So, my perception of what is going on is likely very different to that of others. In the place where I'm in, there is one of hope, Mm -hmm. one of regenerating um, the soil, regenerating our relationships, of really going into a leap of change. They do say that the brightest hour comes after the darkest time. Mm. So I see this dark time right now as, as the push that we need to move forward. Mm-hmm. So I don't know; it depends on each uh, person's perspective.
0: Mm. And so, thinking about the darkest time, what's your pressing concern right now? What's on top of your mind
1: in regards to agriculture, which is what we are focused on? Mm. There is a really big disconnection between us as consumers and what we should be producing and how we should be producing and our expectations of what the produce should be, when we should be consuming it. And if we don't change this consumer perception, no matter how much the farmers do to communicate and to really like take care of the soil and do so in a very sustainable way, we're not going to, to meet each other. So it has to be a true collaboration between the consumer and the farmer. And to me, there is a massive disconnection at the moment. It feels like there is quite a lot of greenwashing as well. And even the word regenerative that we've just started to ride this wave is one that is slightly and slowly being taken advantage of. So this is kind of where we are at the moment. And also the thing that nourishes us the most, the thing that sustains us, is the thing that we are getting being used to pay the least for. Let's say th- uh, 20, 30 years ago, GDP, like what we used in terms of GDP, like of our salary was around 70% for nourishment. Hmm. And now it's just ten percent It seems that we've become accustomed to paying very, very little to what nourishes us and pay high prices to things that shouldn't really be of that importance. So this is... This is where we're working now, where the agriculture, the farmer has too many responsibilities at the moment to ensure the future of agriculture. You know, and the future overall is the future of climate, you know, our future.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting what you're saying about our expectations having changed around what we anticipate we should be paying for food. I was thinking about this recently. I live in... Well, as you know, uh, just just over the strait on um, a little patch in Barcelona where we have a really lovely butchers just up the road and they sell free range, organic, well looked after local chickens from Catalonia. And I remember going there when we first got here and um, paying maybe two or three times what you would expect to pay in a British supermarket for chicken. And I remember thinking two things the first thing was oh my god that's expensive and the second thing was actually it was three things the second thing was this chicken looks really healthy it's really big they you you see the whole chicken and the third thing was hang on this is a life i'm paying for and uh, you know and and there was something around this the, the penny dropped and i thought it's not just plastic wrapped because it's a butcher and you know where the farm is and there's a sense of a, a greater, connect. you were talking about connection, relationship with the life that we're taking to eat, whether it's plant life or whether it's animal life. And it just kind of completely reframed things for me in that moment. And it was a weird one because it was a very simple thing to think. And yet there was something about being able to connect those dots in a way that I hadn't somehow before when everything's kind of sterilised and in plastic boxes and what have you. And so thinking about behaviour change and that quality of relationship that we've lost to the land, to our food, whether we're plant based eaters or people who eat both meat and plant. What do you think we can do to reconnect with our source of nourishment, with the lives and the land?
1: I mean, it depends on where you are. But to me, what I recommend everyone, if possible, is to meet your farmer. Mm-hmm. To get to know the name of the person producing the food for you. Because if you have that, then you have all of the power, you have all of the information, you know exactly how your food is produced. That's it. But the problem is that, of course, you have, you know, you live in a city. I mean, here in Ibiza, it's very easy. Everyone knows our name, you know, mm-hmm. and they come here and they can get to connect with what's they they eat by knowing and seeing how it grows, but in cities, it's such a massive question that
0: I don't know if I could answer it properly. <laughs> but I think meeting the farmer is, is it's a good first step, and I think even in cities, if I think about when I was living in London, and again, it depends on your resources, how much money you have. So there is there is that important factor to take in consideration. But I think where it is possible, you know, there are farmers markets, there are people who run stalls that you can go and meet. There is the possibility in some instances to be able to make that connection.
1: And actually, I just thought of something else, because we've started working with a company, an organization called Producers Market. And what they're working on is to um, include a QR code within packaging of produce hmm. and that you you can scan this QR code and see exactly the traceability of where this product had to go through to end up at your in your hands amazing so it's also that that you do to, to have access to information. I think by that, then it's the first start.
0: Yeah. And I think and we're going to come to this in a little bit. We're going to talk about decentralized autonomous organizations. So the use of technology to help us rethink about the processing of our food, of where it comes from, also how we organize, how we bring community in. But before we get to all of that good stuff, um, I'd love to ask you a bit about your personal story, which is well, it was very inspiring to me. It moved me a lot. Um, and how you came to establish this project, because your life wasn't always about regenerative agriculture. Would you be happy to share some of that?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm a fervor believer on reinventing yourself, and you are not defined uh, in the long run. If you want to change something, just go for it. Um, I started e- trying to... <laughs> Show the world that I was a productive citizen and that I was worthy of um, <laughs> of uh, love and attention, and I did it by working for the largest companies. I worked for Apple and for ExxonMobil and, um, you know, <laughs> oil corporation in London, and of course, you know, trying to get that fulfillment from outside and through the ego was. Definitely no fulfillment at all. So I started becoming very depressed. And then one day I was in London walking on the street on Portobello Road, which, uh, if you know, it has a lot of trash. And I don't know why. I found a piece of paper on the floor and I picked it up. I don't know why. And it was about this event that was bringing speakers to talk about Soil, Soul and Society, it was run by Advaya and the first um, Hmm. speaker and the main speaker was Satish Kumar and I went, I decided that life, you know, was bringing me there. I, um, I heard him speak about following your bliss, about doing something that brings you passion, that work is not work once you're doing it with love. And I shed skin that moment the day after I quit my job. Wow. I put on a backpack and I traveled across Australia for a year. <laughs> and there, that's where I met uh, communities, uh, permaculture communities. And I thought that it was so beautiful for us to have the opportunity to reinsert ourselves back into the cycle of nature because ultimately we need to understand that we are nature also. It's not separate from us. And my mother opened a farm-to-table restaurant in Ibiza, so I decided to move here. I worked for five years in sustainable tourism, which was beautiful, but the hotel closed down. And uh, some clients of the hotel contacted me and said, you know, we've, we are falling in love with the whole movement, regenerative movements. Do you want to join? And I definitely, <laughs> that was my dream. It was my hobby. In winter, throughout this time that I worked in tourism, I would go and do permaculture and agriculture in uh, Central America and in South America. Yeah. And I never thought that I could uh, combine my hobby with with my lifelong um, work. So yeah, this project is very dear to me.
0: Oh, I mean, it's just such an extraordinary story. And I think especially that, possibility of change and then taking a leap and i think it's so easy to feel like you're trapped in especially when you're in a big city like london and you've got the driving ambition around you or a certain set of possibilities that you think you're confined by and defined by and then to completely radically transform your life is just extraordinary i mean obviously it doesn't happen necessarily overnight but the decision did like you made that choice
1: the decision was definitely overnight. I mean, you have to, you have to jump. And the thing is that people would tell me, oh, how brave. And I thought, it's so much easier for me to jump than to stay in somewhere where I am thoroughly unhappy. It it, it didn't feel brave at one point. It just, it was mandatory.
0: There's um, one of my favourite quotes, and I have a terrible memory for quotes, but it's one of my favourites and it's short, so I remember it. it speaks to that. And I always think back to it when I'm in difficult spots. And it's by Anais Na and she says something like, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And it's that, it's just, it's like, (laughs) it's too painful, let's go. So let's talk about what you have co-created. Let's talk about Terra Viva, what it is, and and also to define what regenerative agriculture means to you, because I think that's obviously a key element as part of this conversation. So can you speak to, to that?
1: Yeah, let's start with the definition of regenerative agriculture, because a lot of people ask for that, you know. (laughs) And let's compare. So you have conventional agriculture, which focuses on extraction through maintenance by using chemicals and by a focus on oil. Then you have organic, which is also focused on extraction, but does it by using uh, no chemicals. While regenerative, what it it does is that its main focus is not extraction, but soil health. And by focusing on soil health, the secondary part, which is extraction, is maximized. So it is all, every decision that we make, everything that we do is with the idea of returning health to our soil. That's regenerative agriculture. There's so many techniques, there's so many different ways of doing it, but ultimately the it's 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 that, it's soil health. It's doing production in a truly sustainable way. And when we talk about sustainable is that you can only be sustainable when we have good soil. Otherwise, what you're doing is not sustainable.
0: Yeah. And sustaining life.
1: Exacto. Mm -hmm. Necessary.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's the core crux.
1: (laughs) Well, there are are many different techniques. Uh, The main, um, at least in my opinion, um, I'm not sure if everyone will agree, but the main is diversity. It's diversity and understanding collaboration. If we foment diversity, if we accept that change, and we realize that there is no competition, but rather a collaboration between the species, then we realise that's that's us going back into connecting into the cycle of nature, which is what it demands for us to create forests again. That is not just plants, it's also the introduction of animals, of livestock into the system, but doing so in a way that mimics how animals should be living in
0: nature or would be living in in nature. And I think that's one of the interesting things I find so captivating about the system you're talking about is it really is looking at complex systems and how you can benefit the whole and not just cut bits out because maybe they're more complicated to manage. So it's this very integrative, holistic um, sense of us being part of something that we're almost, well, that, that we can potentially be the stewards and benefactors of. So you mentioned about diversity and collaboration and when we last spoke this is something that I thought was really interesting that you drew and draw a parallel between your approach to regenerative agriculture and to regenerative forms of community and culture. And you also mentioned briefly fear and scarcity. So maybe can we talk a bit about the culture that needs to shift around where people kind of are now and what cultural changes need to happen to get folks to appreciate and engage in a more regenerative approach, not just to to agriculture, but to society? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> 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 That's a big one. <laughs> oh my god! Cultural. It's also spiritual. Mm. It's also human connection, right? We have become quite fearful of diversity. <laughs> you know, we go into packs, and like it's not just packs, but within us, you know, like the diversity of our personalities of who uh, Natalie is. There's so many diverse, like there's so many varieties of you. And of me and of us that we don't seem to accept, you know, like just seems we've gone into a serial kind of path where it's just the same. And if the moment that there is diversity, that diversity seems like it's going to compete over what we think is the main aspect. Mm -hmm. And if we could shift that, if we could realize that the difference between me and the difference between me and you actually adds up rather than subtracts, <sighs> I get goosebumps <laughs> just thinking of that. <laughs> that, that. That's, I mean, so if we could maybe like, I don't know, to me, because I'm in agriculture, if we could rethink systems in agriculture, in technology, in communication, if we could rethink all of these systems, realizing the power of collaboration and realizing the power that diversity brings then it will you know we will be able to then shift our mentality as well mm. so it's kind of like fake it till you make it in a way you know <laughs> and like like creating it from outside and bringing it within mm.
0: I love that parallel about the diversity within us, the plurality within us, and then allowing that to come in. It's interesting because one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit recently is around our fear in engaging with otherness or difference or discomfort, whether it's between different aspects of ourself that can fight things out or perhaps more confrontingly, I suppose, depending on your perspective, being in conversation with other people where there's a potential for emotionally heated disagreement and I think there's something interesting there about, you know, with all this kind of cultural talk around trauma and sensitivity. On the one hand, there's a greater awareness of divergence, difference, plurality, diversity. And one of the perhaps less discussed but really important aspects of that is what do we do when we oversensitize the population so that then certain things are off. Um, off the menu to discuss within ourselves or with other people. So it's kind of this sense of bringing everything out of the shadows that we can to be able to talk about them in much the same way as people are starting to talk about now in terms of chemicals in or tilling in agricultural practices, topics that have previously been taboo, suddenly being able to be discussed in a way that is generative, that's going to lead to hopefully creative action, ideas, conversations. One of the things I think would be interesting to talk with you about in that space is is our fear around scarcity that there's not enough to go around, and this is something that that we talked about previously, but that also comes up in quite a lot of conversations where people talk about quote unquote traditional methods or syntropic methods or whatever the kind of more life giving methods versus the mass need for nourishment. What's your thought around scarcity and how we begin to address that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I yeah, actually, we've talked about fear of diversity and lack of collaboration. And I think the third one is view on, us, on scarcity because it does not, in my opinion, it does not exist. It's a state of mind, not a reality. But by making it your perception, it does become your reality. So that is something that also we need to shift within us because I mean, in, in regards to agriculture, I do have to say that regenerative agriculture is finally something that aims to answer how we can um, feed the world in a truly sustainable way Mm -hmm. that we haven't really seen before. Permaculture goes into how the human can interact with the cycle of nature, can go in. Uh, Biodynamic is something that is just so tricky and complicated that only really high margin products can can survive there. Um, so there really hasn't been an answer until now. Even natural farming is a, a little bit too tricky for us to be able to feed the world. Uh, so finally we have a we have we have a way to move forward. And regenerative agriculture looks at abundance. Because you see it. It's so the moment you actually start looking at the core of us, which is soil, of everything that exists in this planet, which is soil, and you bring in abundance to the soil, it shows as below, so above, right? Mm -hmm. So it starts showing, and it's just like at least to me to have experienced what we're doing in just one year and the return and the possibilities on how abundant everything can be are just overwhelmingly beautiful. But we do need to shift our mindset and our view. But yeah, again, it can be a, a thing of fake it till you make it. Create it outside
0: so that you can integrate it within. I kind of want to dig into that a little bit. So this, this quality of abundance and scarcity as a mindset, I'd love to hear more about what that means to you.
1: The only thing I can say of that is that As I said, you materialize what you believe. And um, we need to shift that. Because there is no such thing as scarcity. (laughs) There really isn't. It it, it really is an abundant world. We just need to, and it doesn't mean that by by seeing it as abundant, that that means that we do massive consumption. (laughs) Mm. That's not what it means. But I think that the moment that you accept that abundance within and without, there is something that connects you to a truer way of living where you don't need to massively consume because you are already full Mm -hmm. within. So actually, I think that by perceiving, experiencing and living through abundance, you begin to have a simpler life. You need less hmm. because you feel like you already have so much, right? I love that. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps just <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> to be able to share that because it really is something
0: that it's constantly in my mind. Yeah. And I think it, it, it gives peace. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It makes me think of um, some of the talks I've been listening to. Uh, I've mentioned this maybe once or twice already this season, but there's a podcast I listen to called The Way Out is In and it's with Brother Fapu of Plum Village, who was the attendant to Thich Nhat Hanh. And they talk about simplicity, but also abundance and abundance of attention and presence. I don't know if they would necessarily use that language, but there's something very much true and alive for me about this sense of if you're not, and this is where obviously we kind of intersect with physical realities, if you're not having to fight for survival in a state of heightened distress or vigilance, then there is huge possibility for weaving into your life the things that give you a sense of fullness that's not necessarily going to be, like I was thinking about this yesterday, walking down the main street, going into all of the big shops. I mean, yeah, if you need to get something because (laughs) your socks have got holes in them, whatever, which is a a perennial problem in our household. Um, But otherwise, it could just be sitting on a bench and watching people play or, you know, whatever it is, which sounds really trite. But when you start to attune to this, it's like what you're saying, what you're paying attention to and what you begin to value and cherish, then it does shift the sense of gnawing hunger or need to to kind of feed there's that sort of insatiable quality of there not being enough. I don't know. Um maybe I'm not putting words to it very well, but No, I completely I agree hundred <laughs> percent. So let's talk a bit about Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or DAOs. Okay. So you mentioned earlier about communities and ways in which to organize people, to come together. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about DAOs and how they can help us in the agricultural sphere?
1: We're actually looking into DAOs here at Terra Viva Mm -hmm. and we are thinking of two different ways. One that is within Terra Viva as the project because for us as a project, which we, we really haven't spoken about <laughs> yet, but <laughs> for us as a project, where <laughs> what we want to do is that this project is owned by the farmers. So with this ownership, it's not just shares. It's also ownership in voice, mm-hmm. in the way that we make decisions and that we um, openly share this decision-making process amongst us and amongst the larger community, right? And to us, that is essential. We all need to be heard. And perhaps by doing that, then we can tackle the struggles that we have with diversity, with diversity of different thinking, of, of thoughts, diversity of the, of opinions, you know, and to accept the other, and to listen to the other, you don't have to feel it, but you you can still listen with a non-judgmental voice. And that's what a Tao does for us in regards to within our own projects. But then there is something else that, for instance, here in Ibiza, there is a massive, incredibly beautiful, how would you say it? something is springing out of these islands where a lot of projects, not just us, are coming to put effort into this regenerative movement. And we need to do it together. Um, If not, then we go back into this ways of, old ways of thinking that are not going to be, are not going to help us into the future, right? So Mm -hmm. all of these projects, all of this collaboration, diversity, this integration, a DAO can really support this by ensuring that equal decision-making takes place, by ensuring an openness in uh, the decisions taken, and, and by really writing the technology Wave that it seems that farms are kind of scared of. Mm. So co- combining these will be. Oof,
0: I don't <laughs> know. It, it,
1: I, I I become speechless because I just I see a world where that happens, and it just gives me so much hope. And DAOs can really be an amazing tool for that.
0: And the thing that comes up for me because I have um, I'm so used to doing things by myself, and I I recognize that. I think part of that is because early experiences with authority and people who don't listen or who don't give space to the person to sort of have their voice heard or at least be recognised as having a, a valid viewpoint. So I really rail against authority and I recognise in myself when we think about collaboration and voices that the, the point where I come across a stumbling block or where I meet resistance in myself is what if someone really wants something that will, that I will find really intolerable. So it could be, um, I don't know, let's say within within agriculture, it could be, or well, we need to use X pesticides or something that you find really difficult that is still part of the majority view. How do you begin to work with that? And how do you work with your own internal sense of fear because for me, like fear for me it shuts down my gates and then I'm like fuck well if I'm open to the views that are similar to mine that don't challenge me too much but we need to include everyone along how do you begin to reckon with that because I I struggle with that I think and I would like not to I mean who doesn't right <laughs> I am not an enlightened being <laughs>
1: <Really>? I wish <laughs> no I actually I don't wish that I like I like the journey but um uh <laughs> I understand the kind of uh, dark feeling that authority can bring because it does so to me too. Uh, but a Tao is not about authority. A Tao is about listening to you, giving you the space to speak, giving me the same, the same space to speak. Try to empathize with the other. See where they, where they come from. Hope that you can communicate the same uh, to the other. And I just, sometimes, yes, you cannot find common ground, but if this communication really goes into the core as to why, you know, we think that way. And perhaps, you know, like things can be tested. Like, okay, you think this way, I think this way. Why don't we test both options and see and then we can make a true decision, you know, I, then we skip, here we go back into diversity because it's not just your point of view or my point of view, because to be honest, we change our point of view <laughs> yes. all the time. Yeah, yeah. So like, why do we need to become so like adamant about how we see things when tomorrow I perhaps will think something else? Mm-hmm. So why not be open to the option that another option could be, you know? But again, this is, you know, part of it. theory. Sometimes, you know, you can do it. Um, sometimes it's more linked to a, a trauma within, so it's hard to kind of break past that. But um, let's just breathe a bit mm. more and see the other as we see us, because we're all pretty much the same, mm. and we go through the same journey and the same kind of um, mental mm. I was going to say a bad word but you know <laughs> you, you can know. we are explicit <laughs> on this podcast
0: yeah <laughs> it's interesting because I think that there is um there is that sort of question of spaciousness and how much space we give to our own plurality and and you mentioned about the perspectives I heard was Esther Pearl was saying something about this the other day that if we were coming up against a challenge by ourselves and we had to make a decision and we weren't in collaboration or partnership with someone else, then we'd have to, or we wouldn't have to, but hopefully a good decision-maker would be able to occupy different positions for a moment in time and go, right, if I did this, what would the outcome be? If I did this different thing, what would the outcome be then? And to kind of take a different vantage point or a series of vantage points to be able to to, to come up with a, a plan or something to test or a primary step. And she was talking about how when we're in the context of relationships, when you're in a partnership with someone, then often one person will take one perspective and the other might take the opposing perspective. Whereas actually when we're having that conversation by ourselves in the absence of the other, we have to occupy many perspectives. And so it's just such an interesting exercise in thinking about what it means to be in dialogue with other people and knowing that that is our tendency to then say, okay, your perspective that you're starting with, with maybe your loudest voice or your first thought is X. What about if you flip it and you take the position of why and then you start to narrate from that perspective, like one might do in debating teams? It's like, right, pick the side of the debate that you least agree with and then make a compelling argument. So there's something around flexing and developing and nurturing the muscle of plurality and thinking to be able to frame things in perhaps a more spacious way. And I think framing things in terms of experiment is great because then you're less attached to outcome perhaps.
1: And I just thought of something else because, I mean, from a personal perspective, I don't know if I'm changing topic here, but the complication of what we're talking about, um, decision making and communication within a doubt, because for instance, I have the tendency, if I can be truly honest, to let go of my voice and give my power to the other so that the other loves me. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very, very careful with also bringing our own traumas and our own bullshit into this equation because your voice needs to be heard Mm -hmm. and you need to hear it. And we lose the power of what a DAO is, both from the authority, from the kind of, here is my idea and you better believe it, and, and from the side of, I don't believe in my own voice. So I'm going to give you the power. And it's essential that we see, we need to believe in equality mm-hmm. within our voices. It's just not as easy as, mm-hmm. you know, just words. Yeah. Like it, when we come into a community, when we come into a DAO, we all come with our baggage. Mm-hmm. And we. To, before we enter a community, before we enter a DAO, we need to, Be aware of our baggage and where we come from so that the energy, you know,
0: flows the way it should. I love that you mentioned that. I think that's a really important part of the equation because I think often it's very easy to slip into the mentality of, well, we just stick a system in there and the system's different enough that we'll be different enough. And of course, that's not the case. Like everything interacts with everything else. We are into being all of the time. And if we're not able to, Notice and name, and do the work to be able to notice and name the tendencies that we have. Then the system won't offer us the possibility for as much flourishing as it might if we did that transformation work within ourselves, but also in relationship with others. I mean, that's a huge. I mean, that's that's the whole thing, right? I mean, the whole. I think often when it comes to (laughs) systems, we're
1: going into very philosophical. (laughs) I love it,
0: but it's about relationship. No, it's all about. For me, at least, it feels like. Any conversation we have about systems, whether it's AI or agriculture or economics, it's about relationship to ourselves and to life. That's it. That's the heart. That's it. Yes. Um, and the further we abstract, the more we lose contact with that, the, the poorer the decisions we make. At least that seems to me to be the pattern, no matter what industry one looks at. So how do we plug ourselves back into life? (laughs)
1: And also, okay, now let me link you back into agriculture (laughs) and food. Because, I mean, we are also what we eat. Uh And how are we able to do all of this that we've just spoken about (laughs) if what we're eating doesn't have the minerals and the nutrients and the goodness that we need? It just, we won't be able to have that mental capacity to break these paradigms, you know? And it's kind of like how it's been. You really do feel a shift the moment you start eating food that really has what it needs for you. It starts shifting as well. So agriculture can be such a massive tool for this, for the evolution of, of humanity and of our planets. So that's what we do here.
0: <laughs> Fixing the world. We try to be part of this change. Mm-hmm. I think it's extraordinary. Okay, so let's move into some of the technical stuff because I do want to touch on <laughs> some of the some of the educational elements to this because it all knits together. Now, you are currently, Terra Viva is um, 20 hectares of syntropic farm, which is, I think, the largest one in Spain. Is that
1: right? It's one of the largest in Spain. Um, the thing is that it's such a new it's so new especially in like it, it's been used uh in mexico in brazil in peru for some years uh, but it's quite new here and it's funny because it's a system that really is needed because it really answers the problem of water And it really answers the problem of fertilizers and the problem of having to bring constant inputs into a system. But yeah, our farm is um, actually, it's polyfarming, which is something that has been created by Joel Salatin. And again, it goes into diversity of operations. So rather than just having a citrus farm or a chicken farm or a veggie farm, what we do is that we combine all of these operations and what becomes the what usually would be the waste of one is now the asset of the other so they all inter- interact with with themselves um, within themselves and within the other operations so we have syntropy, which is the 20 hectares we've just planted 12,000 trees and 11,000 bushes <sighs> Uh, for those that don't know what syntropy is, which is many of us, Syntropy um, what it does is that it looks at how a forest is created from its infancy and sees the species that require, how long will the species take to grow? When they grow, how much sun will they need and how much shade will they give to the rest? So it's called successional syn because what you're doing is constantly redesigning the system, realizing that there is growth within it. And you bring in a lot of a lot of diversity. We have here over 50 different varieties. Mm. Not all of them are productive. actually, most of them are supportive varieties that are mainly fast growers. So through the constant trimming of their foliage, which is a chop-and-drop technique, Um, the fertility of the system comes from this chop-and-drop and And the water. So what we want to prove, what we want to demonstrate, is that we hope within four to five years, the system becomes a fully self-reliant one where the fertility of it comes from its own Origins. That's amazing. So, and then a big example here is a beautiful example um, eucalyptus. Eucalyptus is a tree that everyone, like pines, but eucalyptus is a tree that everyone is pretty against. And when you put it in a monoculture system, it is one of the most devastating uh, things we can do because they are big, big suckers of water. So you dry up everything, the, uh, you dry up the land. And in Spain and many parts of the world, there are many problems with eucalyptus as monoculture, right? Eucalyptus within the system, we actually have many different varieties of eucalyptus within a centropic system. It does the opposite. Hmm. What it does is that it brings, it, it gets all of this water, yes, that it's one of its characteristics. It brings all of this water into their foliage and this chop and drop. What it does is that it brings all of this water to the other species. So when you bring in diversity, then you have a true collaboration among species. And that you see within syntropy. And that is what we've spoken about (laughs) throughout this time together. And it's an example of how important and necessary is diversity within any system.
0: And I think also there's something there, if I can extend the metaphor, around generosity. No, that to give there's got to be an exchange that it's a constant give and take
1: yeah that's the collaboration
0: part right oh I love this I want to give up what I do and come over to you
1: <laughs> I mean the more farmers I think the are better <laughs> and the more female farmers as well you know it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it is important also to bring in not just women but like the femininity into farming then we go into chickens This is the first animal that we included in our design. It's an animal that perhaps would only uh, be able to regenerate um, a very um, not deep part of topsoil. But it's the first one, if you're starting a farm, that will bring a sustainability into your economy. And also, you know, you first start with the first 10, 20, 30 centimeters of topsoil and then you go into the other animals. to to go deeper into the soil, right? So what we do with our chickens is constant rotation. Uh, We have designed these very inexpensive light chicken tractors that we move every morning, easy to move. The only thing that you require is uh, an initial investment on fencing and on these tractors, but otherwise it is quite an easy system. And, uh, and chicken, in my opinion, is one of the, in conventional, is one of the worst <laughs> animals there is. And one of the ones that give us the worst health and in regenerative it's just, they become worlds apart. So conventional chicken, the first thing to know is that they can be slaughtered after six weeks of birth. Uh, six weeks of birth means that they are like this mm. size they're tiny so how come we're eating a chicken that is like this you don't even like like this but actually mm. in the natural world is like this what's happened in the process so what they do is that they overfit them with corn which is something that a chicken doesn't really um digest very well and also there is no for instance in spain there's no organic corn that oh. exists so already that um, they feed them with corn and even then after they have to feed them with hormones hormones that we take so even children below three years old they're not recommended to have chicken because of the added hormones that wow. these, they, they have uh, a usual chicken uh, should be slaughtered in 81 weeks yeah. so you see yeah. the massive difference So first of all is the natural growth of the animal. Second of all is the welfare of the animal. There is like in conventional, you're not even obliged to have movement for the chicken. For organic, you have 24 meters squares for chicken you're obliged to have. Mm. Uh, And for regenerative, actually, we've been lucky that you don't need so much land. You can do it regenerative. And you can do it with eight meters squares per chicken. But because of this constant movement, you are ensuring that these animals don't overtoxify the soil so, because they're only going to be in one place for one day. And they will not go back to that same place until 30 days later. This means that you're giving that plot enough time for it to regenerate, which means that they will also have fresh pasture when they go back to it they will also have fresh insects which means that there is a diversity in their nutrition and the diversity in the, in their nutrition it means they're healthy and they don't require antibiotics mm. while for the conventional they have to pump them with antibiotics because corn is not something that they should be eating so they become ill very quickly wow. so what you're eating is something that has not seen the sun it has not seen the soil it's eating only one thing It's being pumped with hormones, it's being overfed, and it's not allowing natural growth that we're used to, you know? And then, to top it off, after slaughter, they inject 10% water. So you are paying an additional 10% of water. And this is legal, and this, at least in Spain, I know in some countries, like in Denmark, they're obliged to say it, but here they're not. So we are not aware. And then it goes into the color of the animal. You know, we've we've started to believe that yellow chicken is healthy chicken. Yellow chicken is just chicken fed with corn. So, again, what they do, because we have been told that they're healthier, they put turmeric, at least it's turmeric and not a a colorante, (laughs) not a a dye, at least it's turmeric, but they put turmeric in their feet to make them more yellow. And this is also legal. So, I mean, we really don't have the information we require to be able to choose the food that we should eat. That's why when we started this conversation, I said, to really change the world, we need to meet our farmer
0: Mm.
1: and we need to see. We need to see how the food is produced. Because if we were to see, trust me,
0: yeah.
1: no one would eat conventional chicken.
0: No one. Again, it's that, that connection back into reality, literally being faced with the impacts of our choices.
1: Yeah, um, we need to have real information.
0: More information in a way that we actually digest it, yeah. not just abstract and uh, disembodied. So before we move to the um to the dental deep questions round, I want to just ask you a little bit, just so people can hear a bit about what's on offer at Terra Viva. So about the regenerative retreats, the soil laboratories, the EU grant. Like, give us a little brief headline of what people can come to you for and how they can work with you or collaborate with you or support you.
1: So for us, um, there is production that is essential. We cannot. Uh tell others, or we, we cannot guide others into change if we don't do that ourselves. So that's where the production is. We have veggies, we have subscription of our boxes, people can subscribe and we send it home to them and it's a way for us to be able to know how much we should be producing and for us to be able to... Subscriptions are a big thing for mm-hmm. a farm. Uh, we sell to restaurants, we sell to supermarkets, we... Um, This we do through veggies. We started with elaborated products. Um, We are waiting for our trees to grow. So that's in five years. Uh, We're going to start doing dog food. Using truly, like, we hate waste. So, and dog food, like, I have a dog. I just want her to eat well, you know, (laughs) as good as I do. We, we do our chickens. soon. we're going to open our own butcher, which means that we can, we can get our own margins So that's production. And in regards to um, education, which is the other main part of what we do, we do it in three main areas. One we do with children. So we do soil laboratories. We've collaborated with the government here to bring all of the schools of Ibiza and Formentera to learn about the importance of soil health. So we do... um, We go into creating, uh, we call them flower bombs. So really, really rich balls filled with seeds that we then throw around the finca for them to grow at their natural um, moment. That's something that Fukuoka invented and they love it. And they understand it, which is crazy. Uh, I never thought a child, an eight-year-old child can understand what's the importance of moisture on soil Uh, then we do regenerative retreats so that is how we can without needing to be a farmer how we can respect what nourishes us but knowing how by knowing how it should be grown sustainably this the first one we did with satish kumar Mm -hmm. the man that changed my life (laughs) so it was a very emotional retreat Mm -hmm. and um the idea is that during the day we do farming and doing the Afternoons, we do agricultural experiences, so the joy that is within farming. And then during the evening, we bring in activists to talk about how we can all be regenerative within our own industry and our own systems. Mm. So that's where Satish came in to to speak about that triad between soil, soul, and society, Mm. and how we can all tap into that. Um, And then the third one, which uh, (laughs) we've just (laughs) asked for European grants, Uh, We will know in October, and that is what excites us the most, which is free courses for farmers that wish to go from conventional and organic into regenerative. And uh, these free courses will then be uh, tested amongst um, all of the partners. We're partnering with Poland, Greece, Italy. We're partnering with universities, unions of farmers um institute of research um and it's to then document it go into an online platform and if everything goes well and it's approved it's a way for farmers to be certified regenerative and give them the power and the tools that they need to to have better living standards and quality of life so exciting so (laughs) and this is just done by uh, only seven of us so we're all very passionate and um
0: yeah, dedicated team. So um, before we move to the last round, um, I have two questions for you. And the first is, when things get really difficult, uh, and I ask everybody this, cause it's a question that I think is really important. When things get difficult or life gets hard, how do you orient yourself towards beauty and wholeness on dark days? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it depends on, on my state of being at that moment. Uh, Many times I will just have a panic attack (laughs) and then, you know, have to breathe it because uh, it's not bad to have that. Sometimes it can be a check, you know, and that check then helps you rethink through things. But it's just becoming not attached neither to the bad nor the good, right? And that is the life journey. I mean, that is at least my life journey. I don't think at the moment I can always do it, but I try. And it's a day-by-day journey that you, that's where we're here for. Mm -hmm. So when things get difficult, see them as a gift, a gift that will help you learn and become a better person, a more empathetic person. And one that connects more to the pain of all of us. Hmm. Because we can connect through that pain. We should connect through that pain rather than trying to disregard it. You know, I think we need to feel it (laughs) first.
0: Yeah. Well, I really like that perspective. And then just briefly, where's the best place for people to find you if they want to learn out more? What are the links and resources?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you can find our website www.terravivaybiza.com You can find us on Instagram www.terravivaybiza uh, And then we are massive lovers of constant of direct communication, so please come <laughs> by. <laughs> Everyone is more than welcome. We have a shop here at the farm, so, and you know it's just beautiful to get to show people another way of living, and so our doors are always open.
0: Wonderful. Well,
1: thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a really beautiful conversation. I loved every moment of it. So thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen and give a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work, creating, recording and producing each episode. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahigh.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. And you can follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at High. My thanks to Cara C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.